Welcome to episode 14 of the Housebound Historian. I'm Felix Bunnell. We're reading Skid Road, an informal portrait of Seattle, written by Murray Morgan, published by Viking in 1951. On this episode, we're still in the part of the book called John Considine and the Box Houses, 1893 to 1910. And that's where we'll remain for all of this episode, episode 14 of the Housebound Historian. Actors of more orthodox merit played Seattle, too. Henry Irving, Maurice Barrymore and his elder son Lionel, Sidney Drew and Mrs. John Drew, Harry Langdon, W.C. Fields, Eddie Foy, and Sarah Bernhardt all appeared during the 90s. Miss Bernhardt's visit was probably the most remarkable. Not only did she sell out the house, gallery seats $1, first floor $5, for a performance given entirely in French, but she went big game hunting within the city limits and bagged a bear. The 50-year-old actress told admirers that now she had reached the last outpost of civilization she wanted to go hunting. They obligingly took her to the shore of Lake Washington, put her safely in a blind, and ushered into her sight an ancient bear that had been left behind by a circus. She killed the bear and carried his skin back to France, along with the story of how she, quote, had encountered a fierce bear and in hand-to-hand conflict killed the beast of the forest, unquote. Though Bernhardt could sell out the house, less famous actors had trouble making expenses. It was a good year in which at least one troupe did not fold in Seattle. Company managers and theater owners were continually eluding creditors by catching the night boat to Victoria. The city's consciously cultured minority complained a good deal that, quote, the only thing that will draw on Seattle is a minstrel show, unquote. That was not correct. There was one other type of performance that could be counted on to make money. In 1885, for example, the Post-Intelligencer warned its readers about the approach of 20 women who were coming west in a troupe known as the Adamless Eden Company. Quote, there is said to be no merit in the play, unquote, the paper lamented, and less in the players, the chief, and the only attraction being its purpose and the practice of its actors to pander to the depraved tastes of the spectators. It is an indecent exhibition of a lot of women who, for what they can make out of it, parade their half-naked forms on the stage. It is needless to say, the paper said needlessly, that the show draws immensely. In Salt Lake City, the performance was attended by an audience composed of doctors, lawyers, city and county officials, landlords, cattlemen, railroad men, bankers, merchants, music professors, brokers, deputy marshals, latter-day elders, gamblers, and prostitutes. It is safe to say that whenever this company appears, it is sure to have a full house but it is a question whether or not public opinion will secure its suppression before it reaches the North Pacific coast. In that event, what intent disappointment would be felt in certain quarters? The Adams Eden girls did not reach Seattle, but whatever disappointment the paper's readers felt, they could dissipate by a visit to one of the box houses in the Skid Road, where similar types of entertainment were not unknown. The box house was a saloon with a theater attached. The entertainment was rowdy, and the box houses were restricted to an area where they competed with establishments offering even rougher entertainment. The box houses were usually located in basements. They frequently had to close during the rainy season when the floors were covered with water from an inch to a yard deep. Others were built on pilings over the Elliott Bay tide flats, an arrangement that made easy the disposal of boisterous guests, dropped through trap doors, some waded ashore, others were found floating, mostly it depended on the tide. Some box houses were tougher than others, Probably the most respectable was one run by a mysterious Englishman reputed, of course, to be of titled family. He aimed at refinement, and all the women employed in his establishment wore evening gowns. He wanted the carriage trade. Even the songs at his establishment had a certain elegance, the lyrics seldom slipping below the double entendre. 
In time, the proprietor married his most elegant entertainer, then disappeared. More typical of the box houses was the theater Comique, which was located in a basement under a liquor store and cigar stand on Washington Street. A reporter wrote a highly seasoned account of it for the Coast magazine. A nervous opium-eating individual was hammering away at a piano. In the hall-like space before the stage were a hundred or more men and boys. Not a woman was to be seen in the row of seats, only men smoking and chewing tobacco and boys eating peanuts. Around the sides of the room and at the end opposite the stage were built out of thin pine boards, small apartments with an opening towards the platform and a barn-like door leading into the narrow passageway along the wall. In each room was an electric torch button which communicated with a bar set up behind the stage. The boxes were unlighted, save as a stray beam might enter at the window. In these boxes were women, one and some more in others. Women with dresses reaching nearly to the point above their knees, with stained and sweaty tights, with bare arms and necks uncovered over halfway to their waists, with blondined hair and some with powdered wigs, with faces rouged and powdered, eyebrows with winkers smutted up and blackened, there stood the female contingency at the doors and in the boxes. The man who became king of the box houses was John Considine, a teetotaler, a devout Roman Catholic, and a good family man. He was born in Chicago in 1868 and educated in the parochial schools there. He attended, briefly, St. Mary's College at Xavier, Kansas, and the University of Kansas at Lawrence. Classrooms could not hold him when he was offered a job with the traveling stock company. He drifted to Seattle in 1889, when, like the town, he was young, tough, promising, and nearly broke. It would have been easy for a young actor to starve to death in Seattle if he had no other talent than acting, but Considine was more of a showman than an actor. He was a good talker, a good mixer, and a hard man to forget. A big man, he stood just under six feet, but was heavy-boned. He wore conservative suits and white gloves and gaudy ties. He never drank, but he chewed gum constantly. He didn't gamble, though he dealt a sure hand for other men's games. He seldom swore, but he had a cold, furious temper when crossed. So equipped, he rose fast. Within two years, he was manager of the People's Theater, a profitable basement establishment dedicated to wine, women, and pharaoh. Like other box houses along the skid road, the Peoples made its profits not from admissions, which usually started at ten cents, but from the liquor sold to patrons as they watched the show, and from the card tables. The girls who took part in the variety acts were expected to spend their offstage time circulating among the customers, tolling them to the bar. For every drink they cozened a customer into taking, the girls received a metal tag, which the management redeemed in cash. If the girls wished to peddle more personal wares, the management did not object. Few of the houses had cribs attached, but the box seats were deep and the waiters discreet. For the bashful, there were rooming houses nearby. Under such a system, most of the box houses employed entertainers whose talents were not of the type to appear to the best advantage on a stage. Such a setup offended Considine's theatrical instincts. He reasoned that except for the stage shows, one box house was pretty much like another. Therefore, the way to build a bigger clientele was to offer better acts. The way to get better acts was to hire women who were professional actresses. That would be expensive, but the bigger the crowd, the larger the sale of liquor, and the higher the take at the tables. Considine established a system of specialized labor. His actresses stuck to the stage, while his box hustlers plied their trade without having to worry about cadenzas. The peoples prospered, temporarily. For a time, Considine was clearing $2,000 a month, but the depression that struck the nation in 1893 was particularly severe in Seattle. The take dropped. Although business was dull, life in the skid road remained lively. 
There is no law south of the deadline, the Telegraph complained. Anything goes. The papers were full of stories of brawls in the box houses. Patrons complained of being drugged. The son of a prominent citizen lost an eye in a brawl over a hustler. The employees at the palace, unpaid for several months, seized the wine room and drank up their back salaries in 48 hilarious hours. Considine himself broke into print for the first time in Seattle by his impromptu role as referee in a knife fight between two of his leading ladies. The trouble started when Lillian Masterson, a Spokane divorcee whom Considine was grooming to be the top attraction in the variety end of his establishment, met Kitty Goodwin, the aging celebrity whose public she was stealing, at the bar. The two ladies entered into a discussion of each other's virtues, a chat that ended with Mrs. Masterson attacking Miss Goodwin with a beer glass. No damage was done. About 2.30 the same morning, the girls met again, and according to the Telegraph, quote, but few words were exchanged when Kitty violently slapped Mrs. Masterson's painted cheeks. Some high-kicking followed only to have Miss Goodwin embed her fingers in Miss Lillian's bushy locks and with a jerk throw her upon the floor. At this juncture, Mr. Considine and Billy King separated the women. Miss Goodwin, ten minutes later, seized an opportunity and renewed the fight. She again caught Mrs. Masterson in the hair of the head. Again, Mr. Considine appeared a peacemaker. While he was trying to break Kitty's hold, Mrs. Masterson brought a small penknife into play. She cut her antagonist once at the elbow, again above the elbow, and a third slash on the fleshy part of the forearm. Somehow, by accident, Mr. Considine's right coat sleeve was also cut. Unquote. It took 13 stitches to patch up Miss Goodwin. Mrs. Masterson was arrested but was released when Kitty, after a conference with Considine, refused to bring charges. That was not the last time Considine's name was to be associated with violence along the skid road. Such non-professional activities made things lively south of Yesler Way, but they offended a number of good citizens. In 1894, the representatives of these respectables gained a majority of seats on the city council and set about abating the boxhouse nuisance. Their method was simple. They passed an ordinance forbidding the sale of liquor in theaters. Quote, Silence reigned in the music halls last night, and not a bar of music nor a snatch of song were echoed from the walls of the dingy basements in which they are located. Unquote. The post-intelligencer reported the day after the ordinance was passed. Quote, Licensed Inspector Taylor went round yesterday and saw each of the proprietors personally and advised them to discontinue. Last night, Sergeant Willard made the rounds and found the order had been observed. Unquote. Considine toyed with the idea of running the peoples purely as a theater, but he gave it up. Things had been tough enough, even with the profits from liquor and cards. He crossed the mountains to Spokane, where he put in three years as manager of a people's theater, years that proved to be more controversial than they were profitable. The venture ended when the Spokane City Council passed an ordinance barring women as boxhouse employees. Quote, I went to the mayor to ask him if I could be allowed to run, unquote, Considine said later. Quote, I offered to close up all the upstairs and not let a man or woman go up there, to have no boxes and to only have a few women on the ground floor in the open auditorium to sell drinks. He told me that so long as he was mayor, he would permit no women to be employed in a variety theater. Word was sent to me soon after that I could not get a license from this council, and that was positive, unquote. So, reluctantly, Considine gave up Spokane. He considered shifting his operations to Idaho, where the population had displayed a passion for rugged entertainment, but he decided to return to Seattle first and see how things were doing in his old stamping grounds. When Considine had removed to Spokane in 1894, a few optimistic culture vendors had tried to keep the People's Theater open without alcohol. Quote, it was no use, unquote, according to a contemporary account. Quote, at last the basement was given over to the rats and the cobwebs. 
Hobos found an entrance, and soon they had the boxes where wine had flowed freely in the old days, converted into sleeping apartments. With the passing of each day came an additional layer of dirt and filth, until the old cellar, which had been dignified by the name Theater, resembled a place where pigs hold forth." Unquote. The Klondike rush changed all that. Thousands of unattached males flocked to the town. While they waited for transportation north, they were eager to spend the fortunes they were going to make. The box houses reopened. The city council, which had closed the establishments because they were fleecing Seattle citizens, had no objection if the houses kept some of the visitors' money in town. Among the theaters that reopened was the People's. Mose Goldsmith and the Miller brothers rented the basement, spent $3,000 cleaning it up, and, according to some estimates, cleared 3000 in their first two weeks of operation. So it was that when Considine returned to Seattle late in 1897, he saw at once that the good old days had never been so good. He would have to set up in business again. But where? Every likely basement south of Yesler Way was occupied. Then he had a profitable, if unethical, inspiration. As an old occupant of the people's basement, he knew that the owners were in San Francisco. He guessed that Goldsmith and the Millers might be operating on a verbal contract. He caught the next train for San Francisco. When Goldsmith learned that Considine had visited the Peoples, he guessed what the visit might mean. He too started south, but too late. On reaching San Francisco, he found that Considine had signed a year's lease on the Peoples Theater for $250 a month, starting in February 1898. To celebrate his return to the Skid Road, Considine imported the most famous variety performer of the day, Little Egypt, a dancer whose national reputation rested on the fact that she had been arrested in New York for dancing nude at a stage party at Sherry's. She was acquitted when she told the judge that she just looked naked. The press was on hand when Little Egypt arrived in Seattle. In the great tradition of burlesque queens, she proved to be, quote, a charming woman, a pleasant conversationalist, and one who was well-informed on current topics of the day, unquote. So said the Times. As for her dance being suggestive, Little Egypt assured the reporters that the people of Turkey became very angry when anyone laughed about it. She was dedicated to her work. It was art. She danced the Muscle Dance, the Turkish Dance, and the Damascus Dance. On a good night, she said, she combined all three. Seattle's male population packed the peoples to watch the pleasant conversationalist in action. According to a first-night observer, they were not disappointed. Quote, Little Egypt proved a hummer and she was greeted with tremendous applause in an extremely interesting dance." Unquote. The Peoples was soon the dominant box house on the Skid Road, though never without rivals. In summertime, when the regular theaters were closed, a man looking for entertainment could find it only south of the deadline. There, according to a somewhat supercilious observer, quote, "...every evening, week in and week out, the beauties of the drama are unfolded to the admiring gaze of audiences, who were admitted to the best seats in the house for the small sum of ten cents." Unquote. When gold miners and gamblers, prostitutes and sports, soft-handed chichacos, and horny-palmed river pilots from the Yukon roamed the newly cobbled streets, barkers shouted of the attractions to be seen in the basements. Every night at the corner of 2nd and Washington, musicians from the People's Theater clashed in a resounding duel with a brass band from a rival establishment. On July 30, 1899, a post-intelligencer reporter described the musical battle and its aftermath. It is about eight o'clock in the evening that the battle begins. About that hour, the players of the brass band on the west side of the avenue file out from behind the swinging doors of some cool, darkened beer saloon, and, removing their coats, hats, and collars, prepare for the fray. An admiring crowd quickly gathers. The selection ended, the leader of the orchestra lowers his cornet from his ruddy countenance, bows low to the crowd surrounding him and to his brave supporters. 
In the meantime, the champions of the opposition have taken their stations on a high platform built over the entrance of the People's Theater. There are three of them. The leader is armed with a violin, which he handles with the daredevil grace and ease of a plowman handling a six-shooter. Scarcely less deadly is his execution. Another dark-faced young man with a melancholy cast of countenance strums a huge harp. The third of the challenged musicians defiantly pipes away through a husky clarinet. These three musicians have only been dallying during the bout of the brass band man. Now they strike up a lugubrious melody. A stalwart young fellow with lungs of leather adds his voice to their efforts of the instruments. She stole 9,600, he bellows in the deepest of baritones. Say, babe, I know we will be happy after a while. The band across the street hesitates to return the fire. The crowd looks toward them for an answer. Suddenly, around the block is heard the discordant blare of an untutored brass band and the voices of men and women upraised in a popular street ditty. But the words are strangely out of joint. They seem to have been adapted from a hymn book and misfitted to the tune. It is the Salvation Army. Fifty strong, the uniformed soldiers of the Lord swing into the street in front of the theater and march up toward their yesterday barracks, flags flying, torches smoking and sputtering, musicians playing like mad. The approach of the army settles it with the brass band. The summer heat is forgotten, and with renewed interest the players await the signal. It comes, and pandemonium reigns. The crowd cheers. The Salvationists are outpointed two to one in the contest, but on they march, happily unconscious of the fact. Leaving the theater band to finish that enlivening melody, there'll be a hot time in the old town tonight. On both corners, lusty-lunged spielers shout the advantages of their respective shows, and as the musicians file down the stairs into the theaters, the crowd divides and flows after them. For a few moments, the entrance hall is crowded, and dirty dimes, nickels, and quarters by the court are poured out onto the ticket seller's desk. The hubbub subsides, and the show begins. Gaily dressed girls and women, wearing abbreviated skirts, plenty of paste jewelry, and a superabundance of paint, powder, and false hair, come and go without hindrance to all parts of the house, soliciting patrons to buy drinks, upon which they make a commission. Beer is five a glass. Do you know the price, gentlemen? shout the white-aproned waiters as they hurry up and down the aisles. Any beer here? Yes, sir. Then in a louder key to the bartender in the rear of the theater, draw one. Over and over, the monotonous invitation to buy beer is repeated and often accepted. Many are the foaming mugs consumed by the audience on a hot night, and it is probably in order that the audience buy more liquid refreshments that the theater is never closed before one in the morning and often remains open longer. And we'll stop there. This concludes episode 14 of The Housebound Historian. We're reading Skid Road, an informal portrait of Seattle, written by Murray Morgan and published by Viking in 1951. This chapter will continue in the next episode. I'm Felix Bennell.